So Acts chapter 11, verse 19, page 1105. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Uh, would you give a very warm welcome to Glyn Harrison? Thanks. Uh, Glyn, thank you so, so much for being with us. I'm just going to pray for you and then hand over to you. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Glyn. And we pray that you would um, use him as your mouthpiece as he speaks now. We pray you fill him with your spirit and that as he speaks, you would be at work in all of our lives. We thank you for him for bringing him here and we pray that as he gives out that you would encourage him. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, Jager, thank you so much and good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be here. Thank you, uh, Jager, for inviting me along here, not too far, just down the line from Islington. Uh, and it's uh, great to be with you uh, this morning. And uh, for a mini-series headed following Jesus in a divided world, it was a smart move, wasn't it, to begin with this issue of identity. It affects every one of us, every developing little mind, every teenager, every adult, regardless of social class, your sex, your ethnic background, your social, your sexual interests, your lived experience. We all face the same ultimate questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I for? Now, don't get me wrong, these other aspects of our lives um, aren't unimportant. No, no, no. Social class, ethnicity, sex, these, these are big and important parts of our, our lives. But if we Christians want to think rightly about them, 
We need to think through the bigger issues and questions that stand behind them. Questions of identity, meaning. There's another good reason for looking at identity as well. Think of the power of this question today to sow division and anger in our society. We see one identity group pitted against another, accusations flying around of hatred and oppression, calls to cancel and exclude. Sometimes it feels as though the whole uh, human experience today and culture is being flattened into an unrelenting state of identity war. So what's going on here? Well, we're going to do a deeper dive into these issues together on Wednesday with plenty of time, hopefully, for Q&A and bring along any questions that arise from our session together this morning. But here's three questions to get us started just now. First, what is a personal identity? And then, how did we get to this point, this point today of conflict and obsession with this issue? And third, how does our faith bear down on all of this? And what did the passage in particular we read together bring and say to us this morning? Now, you know, you'd be amazed how many talks and identity don't get around to defining what it is. So we're going to start with that. What is identity? Well, it's big Big question, but we humans have the remarkable ability to hold mental concepts of the world, to make mental concepts, abstract ideas that draw out common themes and summarize them in one or two words in our heads, beliefs. So take the concept of veganism, see? Lots of different reasons why people become vegans. There are lots of different recipes for vegans. There are um, lots of kind of associated vegan lifestyles, but we draw all of this together and summarize it under the general concept of veganism. You see, that's a concept. Now, a personal identity encompasses the concepts we hold, not about the world out there, but about ourselves. So I'm a kind and thoughtful person. That's a self-concept. It's not me, by the way. Ask my wife. But, you know, that some people that you might be... um, I'm a reliable, conscientious electrician, somebody may be thinking here. And there are lots of these self-concepts float around in our head, but some of them are so close to the center of our passions that they become the organizing principle for all of the rest, okay? So um, you, you you might be somebody here and you say, I'm a Ukrainian and that is the reality that sits above everything else in my life right now. I was a feminist. You might say, I still am. Uh, but, but now my passion for equality is pursued through the lens and ordered toward a higher and even more important good, which is the defense of my people and the pursuit of fairness and democracy and the resistance of oppression and brutality. That is what defines 
who I am. That is what summarizes everything about me and takes priority. Or you might be saying, I'm an eco-warrior. That's what drives me. Or somebody over here says, I'm, I'm one of the growing number of top FTSE 100 uh, female CEOs. Whatever captures the supreme value of our lives comes to represent who I am, my identity, the organizing principle that gives overall stability to this sense of being me. Now, of, of course, things change over time. Uh, veganism gradually loses its centralizing focus, and now it's about being um, an eco-warrior, you see. But, but nevertheless, although things do shift and change, it's the relative stability of our self-concept that helps give coherence and ballast to our sense of self. It, it helps us to set goals and to work toward them in an orderly way. We're not chopping and changing one thing today and I wake up tomorrow and I'm another thing tomorrow. It's the relative stability that an identity brings that explains part of its link with well-being and better mental health. Okay? So that's identity. So moving on to our Second question, how did we get to this point of obsession, conflict around this issue? It's a wonderful question with a big answer. Um, and on Wednesday, we'll, we'll, as I say, dig deeper into some of the, the thinkers that have, shaped our, that have shaped our thinking on this issue. Nietzsche, Freud, Marx, Michael Foucault, Judith Butler... Um, but, but the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor probably draws it all together for us this morning in what he calls the rise of the buffered self. That is how he understands and interprets what's going on today. The rise in our culture of the buffered self. What's that? The buffered self, says Taylor, is where the development of our self-understanding takes place behind the closed doors of the self. Don't you tell me who I am. I decide who I am. You heard it? You hey, you be you. You just need to look inside of yourself. I am my own experiment, sings Madonna. I am my own work of art, what not to like. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, sings. Who? Who? Elsa, yes, from Frozen. No right, no wrong. No rules for me. I'm free, you see, and what not to like. This is the mantra that dances and captures the hearts of our children, our teenagers, you and I, the desire to be free. Now, what did the serpent whisper into the eyes of, into the ears of Eve? You shall be as gods. You shall be as gods. And somehow this mantra today connects so deeply with that aching, rebellious longing in our hearts, doesn't it? 
And so you see, in the world of the buffered self, we don't receive meaning from God or, or from the world or, or from your own bodies, for that matter. We impose it on God and on the world and on our own bodies. Don't you tell me who I am or what I must be, we say. I decide who I am. I identify. Have you heard that? I identify as. Now, in previous centuries, Taylor suggests, it wasn't like this. Your identity was formed much more in negotiation with the world around you. Three main sources, probably. We looked outward to our situation, our background, our family, for values and meaning that we drew on. And of course, yes, we looked inward to the world of our passions, our desires. And, and we looked upward for transcendent spiritual sources of meaning, purpose, and identity. This was what Taylor calls the world of the porous self, not the buffered self, the porous self, the self open to the world, drawing meaning from the world, and most of all, open to God and the transcendent and drawing meaning from there. And of course, the self is still charged with and responsible for weaving all this together into our sense of identity, of course. But it was a personal identity which self-consciously sat as part of a bigger story than me. And I tell you, everybody, if we have a message to take to the world that is life-giving and freeing, it's that your life is not about you. It's a, it's a vortex, it's a suction, it's a rabbit hole. A, a psychological cul-de-sac that leaves you with yourself, and that's all. Today's buffered self, you see, in contrast to the poorest self, barriers itself against the world, which it sees as oppressive, harmful, and it cuts itself off from the transcendent. Don't you, God, or anybody else tell, tell me who I am or what I must do. I choose. And in its most ex extreme iterations, if reality doesn't rely, align with what I assert, I will impose my version of reality on the world. Maybe on my own body. Okay, look. Let's clear up something before anybody goes away with the wrong idea. I'm not saying that we do not have choice and that our choices are not central. I'm not saying we're not responsible ourselves ultimately for, for, for responding to the meanings we draw from the world and choosing between them. Of course we are. I, let me tell you a story of a, an 11-year-old who uh, was brought up in a really... Uh, uh, poorer um, working class background and I was 11 years old at the time and I wanted to be a doctor and nobody in our family had even gone to any kind of college let alone university let alone medicine this was a world that was alien to, to us 
But that was in my blood. That's what I wanted. And, and everything hinged on the 11 plus examination. Would I get to go to the grammar school or would I go upstairs with the boys with scuffed knees who are really rough and difficult? So 11 plus. And when the letters arrived and I opened mine, um, it, it told me I was going upstairs. And, um, and so all of my dreams crashed with that. Uh, in fact, the headmaster, who'd had earlier news of this, gave me a second go at it, uh, the 11 plus, because he thought this wasn't, and, and I failed that too. So I was consistent in my <laughs> failure. Do you know, I came in the bottom third of all the children in the magnificent, wonderful town of Grimsby. I was in the bottom third twice. And I remember my, my granny took me aside, and I remember it so clearly, 60 years ago over now. And she said, you know, it was a great idea being, we love the idea that, that you want to be a doctor. You know, Glenn, she said, our kind of people don't do that kind of thing. And something in me said, that's not right, thankfully. And something in my father said, that's not right and I'm so thankful and grateful for that that we drew a sense of meaning and purpose and dignity from a source other than the traditions around us we said no to that in order to say yes to something more and I got another chance and then I got to medical school so yes the world can straitjacket and constrain us and oppress us and we do have to say no don't we? And so this is something that, that we actually share in common with our culture today and its preoccupation with this question of identity. How can we be truly free and order our lives in a way that leads to flourishing? All the right questions the world's asking just now. How can we accept ourselves, be honest about ourselves and deal with what's there and not what we pretend to be there? It's a good question. But here's the thing. Is the world of the buffered self the right answer to the question? You know, this is a great way of relating to our world right now. Rather than squaring up to your opponent, you say, look, we share the same ambition, the same questions. I think you want to see people flourish. I want to see people flourish. We both want to see the little people raised up and the big people taken down. We share that. But I think we have very different ways of getting there. Can I share mine? And, and, and what I submit to you is that the world of the buffered self as the answer to that question, is it? No, I, there's growing evidence that the answer is no. No, it's not. And I'll show you some of the psychological evidence on Wednesday, but now, for the moment, let's just look at the common sense argument. You be you, just look inside. Is that the answer? When I look inside myself, I don't know about you. What do we find? What do you find? when you look inside yourself honestly, authentically, like the world tells us to. I see some real strengths in here. I think I'm really good at some things. 
And I'm, I'm comfortable with saying that and owning that. But there's a dark side too in me. There is in you, isn't there? And I see dark, dark instincts, desires. And some of them have their roots in hell. And yours do too. And so yes, we need self-acceptance in the sense of embracing all that truly is there. But the question that's left unanswered by the buffered self is, what do we do with what we find? You know, I um, sold my battered old Mercedes about 10 years ago, uh, thanks to uh, Mr. Khan and his new regulations. And uh, I, I, I went along and took the car to uh, a firm with something like the title of we give you loads of money for your car dot com, you know? <laughs> and so I, I went along full of, you know, the value that they'd given was amazing. And of course, the, the chap who met me there were very nice, but he went round with his clipboard and he found a little scratch here and a little dent there. And, and it was beaten down to this measly check that I eventually walked out with but while he was filling in all the details we, we got chatting and um, and he mentioned that he'd come to the UK um, a couple, two or three years before and I said what brought you to the UK then he said well I came to, to my brother was already here and I and and so that was a link but I said something there must be more than that what what actually you thought it's the UK for me and and he said um, he put his didn't have a pen, he stopped his computer. And he said, you know, I, I guess I came to find myself. And I said, but when you've done that, what if you don't like what you see? And he said, have you got time for a coffee? <laughs> he didn't increase the price one bit. <laughs> But I did get a cup of coffee and we did have an interesting conversation because you see, it just needs a little question like that to open up the fallacy that sits at the center of today's prevailing culture. Just be yourself. It's a phrase that lifts us up in expectation and then leaves us dangling in the wind, consigned to a, a treadmill of endless daily self-making. Who am I today? And paradoxically, rather than building confident souls, young people ready to go out and make something of, of God's world, this inward turn seems to be producing hollowed out, weakened selves. Never quite sure whether today's version of who I am is going to be enough. And it never seems to be. Because at the same time, our worlds are bombarded by images and contrasts and comparisons and advertising and social media, which says you're not enough. But just do this and you can be. The treadmill speeds up. We're running faster. And could this be why this sense of hollowing out, that especially why we see, especially on university campuses, that students today can appear so fragile and in need of protection, safe spaces, the buffered self, leaning on itself, because that's all it has, seems so easily wounded. 
And, and when it encounters views which don't align with its view of itself, because that's all it's got, its view of itself, it, it perceives the other person's different views as an assault on itself, you see. And so it has to hit back or demand a safe space and to be barriered and protected from those views. One side pitting against another as we organize ourselves into identity groups and go to war with one another. Now, today's culture of self-invention, the buffered self, probably tilts more to the left politically than the right for, for lots of interesting reasons. But in, in all honesty, neither end of the political spectrum knows quite what to do about these big questions of identity. Because you see, cut off from the transcendent, regardless of our politics, none of us can really be sure of who we are. So this brings us to our last question and let's turn together again to the passage we read together, Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19 today. And the question is, as we just look briefly at these verses, how does our faith now bear down on these big questions of identity and selfhood today? And there are three things to notice here. The first thing to notice there, do you see in verse 19, is that Stephen's death has resulted in the scattering of the early Christian followers across and away from Jerusalem and Judea, further out geographically. In, indeed, the, the death of this young man, Stephen, and it had taken place at this point about eight years before, had resulted in the beginning of the evangelization of the world. And, and what we find is that these early believers, and goodness me, we have no idea of the price they paid to bring us the gospel that we sit with on our knees so comfortably today. When they were scattered, we just read it here, when you're torn away from your family and you take your kids and you take your livelihood away, and, and you lose any sense of security that your wider family gave you because they've disowned you now as a Christian. You've disowned the family gods, you've disowned us. And when, when you're scattered, these people, they didn't say, well, well, we've got this wrong, we need to recant, we need to give in, we need to get with the program again. No, no, they took the gospel out with them in their suffering because you see their sense of who they were and what they were about was controlled by their being part they felt of a story that was bigger than themselves that's the key they were part of a story that was bigger than themselves and that's what drove them and then second, notice how a young man called Saul, or Paul at this point, has re-entered the story. Verse 25, Barnabas is sent up from Jerusalem to Antioch. The church at Antioch is getting well established. The believers have 
been scattered up there, established a church. Up goes Barnabas. Barnabas, it was all about him, self-expression, self-esteem, his self-worth. He was totally preoccupied with himself. Was he? No. Barnabas was the encourager. It was all about other people, building up other people. That was what drove him. Again, a sense of being part of a story bigger than himself. And then Barnabas heads beyond Antioch, up the coast, round to a place called Tarsus. Why? He's going to fetch someone called Saul, or now called Paul. And it was at Stephen's brutal death that the ringleader had stood and watched a young man called Saul, now Paul. And of course, again, Stephen's brutal death had led, been the trigger for the eventual coming to Christ of Paul. And this young man now, he'd spent three years out in the desert. And, and now he'd, he'd he was going to embark on a mission that was all about him, his self-worth, his self-esteem, his self-fulfillment, his self-preoccupation. Was it? No. He was embarked on a mission that was playing his part in a story again bigger than himself. Do you remember how, how Paul always began his letters? Virtually every letter he wrote. Corinthians, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. Galatians, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ. Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. You see, each of these, not turned in on themselves, whether it was Stephen who gave his life or Barnabas who spent his life building other people up or Paul with this sense of mission to take the news of Jesus around the world. All of these were, were living from an identity that was part of a story that was bigger than just them. It was a story that involved them wonderfully. No, no, Paul had a powerful sense of God's call, what was given him to do. But the story itself wasn't about them. They were serving a higher purpose, a higher value, a higher good. And listen, everybody, this is who we are. Do you see it there, verse 26? The disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. They, they didn't identify themselves, they didn't need to. The people out there could see what was their consuming passion, the highest good of all, to which all other aspects of themselves were now ordered and subordinated the great purpose that they served, which was Christ. And so they couldn't think of any other name for them but Christians. And we bear this name so lightly, but it is so, so deep and defining of us. 
that we are in and of and for Christ. That's what it means. The great North African theologian, St. Augustine, put it like this. He said, love God first and then love everything else for the sake of God. Now, we have lots of loves and wants, don't we? We love our wine. We love food. We, we love to feel, have a sense of worth and confidence. We, we desire, we love status. We love our family. We want, we desire. And, and most of these, there's nothing wrong in them, in and of themselves. But we need to love these things within the greater love of Christ. We love them for him. And if you can't drink your wine to the glory of God, don't drink it. If you have no sense of this being a gift of God and part of our flourishing as human beings as we draw on the gifts that God gives us in the world, don't drink it. But if you can, drink it to the glory of God, but always serving a good, a value that is higher than ourselves, which is God himself. That is who we are. Those who are of Christ, who order all of our lives toward him. Christians is what we are. Well, we're through, and I know this raises lots of interesting questions, but I just want to finish a couple of hundred years before Augustine. There was a, a young, well, I don't know how old she was, a woman called Secunda in the same city, Carthage, in North Africa, another North African. And she stepped forward before the local Roman consul. His name was Saturninus. Saturninus wasn't a bad man in many ways. He was a decent sort of guy. He was a classic administrator. He'd already, eight weeks before them, seen Secunda and her friends. There were 12 of them in all. And he said, look, you just need to bow the knee to, to Caesar. Just say it. And then we all go home. And he sent them away. Gave them a few weeks. Think about it. I wonder what went on in Secunda. I wonder what her family were, were saying. I wonder what advice she was given. I wonder what she struggled with in her heart. And the time came to go back before Saturninus says, well, how have you made up your mind? And he looks at them all and Secunda steps forward and she says, I am a Christian. I must be what I am. I must be what I am. Listen, everybody, we stand on the shoulders of giants. This little unheard of woman, girl, she's a giant in our tradition. And you know, we complain that we're, we're finding it tough at work because we're so culturally at dissonance with, our, with what's going on. We, we don't like it when people, when people don't like us and, and feel that what we're saying is hateful and friends, our forebears have all been here before. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said, these Christians, he said, they're hate-filled. 
This is just a few decades after Christ himself. Hate-filled people. We're not the first people to be misconstrued by those around us. But we stand on the shoulders of giants, people who didn't suffer just a little bit of inconvenience, people who gave their lives. Because Saturninus said, so be it. And Secunda and her 11 colleagues were taken out. And one by one, they stepped forward and a sword was pushed down into their chest. They gave their lives. If we see a little clearer today, it's because we stand on the shoulders of giants. Like her. And now it's our turn. Who are we? Listen, everybody, if, if we follow Jesus, we are Christians. Now it's our turn be what we are.